Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Um, and Pastor Bob, thank you so much for being willing to talk about this. This is a tough, tough topic, isn't it? And I'm here to talk again from the partner's perspective. And if I, there we go. Um, I really appreciate what Brooke said. I really appreciate what Josh said. And I really appreciate those of you who are sitting here listening to all of this. And I know as I speak that I'm talking to people who are actively looking at porn, maybe doing sexting, whatever, because that's just, it's such a huge problem in our society. And I take my hat off to you for being willing to actually come and get educated about this. And so what I have to say, I, I, um, I talked to Brooke earlier, I said, it hurts me to say this, because I know that it could be interpreted shaming, because I'm gonna tell my story too. And one of the things that happens when we use porn is we really do not realize how we're impacting the people who love us, because we're only seeing our own pain that we're trying to numb through the pornography, and we're feeling our own shame, and there's a, so much shame attached to this, and as long as you feel shame, you can't come forward and get help. So it's this terrible shame cycle that goes on and on and on. And so as I share my story, and as you listen to Brooke's story, I'm not sharing that to add more shame, I'm sharing that to add more light. Because it is the truth that sets us free, and as we know, Really and truly what we're doing, just as Josh shared, how when we use pornography, we're actually exploiting others, we're engaging in human trafficking. That can open our eyes enough to step past our own shame to say, I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. And so my story is, I married as a 21-year-old woman, a young man who had grown up on the mission field. When I met him, he had a White House security clearance. He was working in the Nixon administration. And I thought that meant something, you know? I really did. And all of my friends who, and family who knew him said, boy, he is a super nice, squeaky clean guy. And I thought I was the luckiest woman in the world because I had found a Boy Scout. <laughs> and, and so I jumped into marriage with both feet and all kinds of stars in my eyes. And, um, you know, my husband, I saved myself for my husband because I really believed in all of that. And, and I was so... Um, dedicated to living my life for the Lord. And I really believed very naively that those were the things that were the ingredients for a good marriage. And I was so wrong because it took almost 20 years for me to find out about his secret life, okay? And during those 20 years, I always knew there was something wrong. But when I went for help, I would go to my church and I would ask them, there's something wrong in my marriage, I don't know what it is. And I would be told I just needed to be more submissive. I needed to support him, I needed to pray for him, that if I was the woman God wanted me to be, that he would be the man standing you know, by the gates, holding forth as a mighty man of God, and if there were problems, they were my problems. And that happened in more than one church. And so I tried really hard. <laughs> 
You know, I did the, um, the Total Woman. I did Fascinating Woman. I did He's from Home Depot, She's from Walmart Woman. And guess what? The marriage just kept getting worse and worse, and we're going to talk more about that. And it was almost 20 years into the marriage when the truth finally came out. And so I'm going to talk about how this impacted my marriage and how it impacted me. And I'm here talking to you because pornography took my entire family. My entire family. And so when you start looking at this stuff, you don't realize what the ramifications are. I'm 66. And I really thought at this point in my life I would be surrounded by grandchildren and be um, celebrating a life well lived. And instead, I am all on my own. Both of my children have been taken by this and my ex-husband, who is still involved in it. So please, if you're doing this, know there's hope and there's help. And Lisa is awesome in that. And so without further ado, I want to get into why porn causes relational trauma, what happens to the brain when it's on trauma, and what we can do about it. And so let me start by defining trauma. It's a very severe shock or a very upsetting experience which may cause psychological and physical damage and may have long-lasting impacts. And we, we don't realize what happens in our body. You know, our body absorbs a lot of energy when we have different emotional reactions. And it can result in cancers. It can result in uh, fibromyalgia. It can result in, in bowel issues. For me, within a few um, hours, actually, of finding out about my husband's secret life, I came down with pneumonia. I was sick for months. I'd never had it before. On the first anniversary of finding out, I came down with pneumonia again. We were separated on the second anniversary. The third anniversary, we were back together, and I got sick again. It was the sadness. It was the complete draining out of my life. So it had psychological, physical damage for me, and, and I lived with post-traumatic stress for many years, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's a feeling of being disempowered and a sense that the world is an unsafe place. And when you feel the world is an unsafe place, you live in a state of constant resistance because you're always watching out. You're always afraid of what might happen. Instead of living in a state of allowing and being open, and not that you don't want to be, but you've learned that it's not safe to be, and you don't ever want that to happen to you again, and so you are hypervigilant. So let's talk about secret porn use, because as you've heard, most of the porn use, at least in the beginning, is done secretly. Or if there's any kind of a confession, what happens is, you know, there's sort of like what I call the droplet or the tip of the iceberg confession. Yeah, well, I was looking at it, but, you know, I don't really look at it too much. And, you know, don't worry about it. I've got this handled. In my case, um, I only saw pornography in our home one time. And that was I had uh, traveled on a trip when we were buying a house in um, New Hampshire, we were living in Texas at the time. I'd gone up to take care of the details on that. When I came back, uh, I found a bag of porn magazines under the bed. I was shocked. I was like, what's this? And I went to see our pastor. Our pastor talked to him. 
And, you know, then our pastor talked to me. He said, look, it was a one-time deal. It's really okay. You shouldn't worry about this. And so I didn't. So I only saw porn in our home one time, but it was going on secretly. So even though you think it's not a surface issue, there's things that are happening behind the scenes when pornography is using secretly. First of all, it takes time from the relationship. Okay, so, you know, you looked at how many hours Josh showed on the screen that pornography is viewed. Well, those are hours you could be spending in your relationship, but you're not. You're, you're, you're fixed to a computer, you're on your cell phone, maybe you're at the strip club, maybe you're out uh, meeting prostitutes. That's all time that could be involved, invested in the relationship, and it's not being. So there's a sense of loneliness that the spouse has. This like, well, why are they not here? And I can remember time after time fixing fabulous dinners for my husband, um, putting a lamp in the window so that he would see it when he came home at night, and then waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and then feeding the kids and then having to put them to bed. And, and kissing them and having them say, well, I want to see Daddy before he comes home. Can I, can I stay up until Daddy gets here, Mom? And then Daddy would come in at like midnight, one, two in the morning. And he always had a really good excuse because he had the kind of job where he was maintaining heavy equipment. And so he could say, well, you know, the machine broke down and I had to stay and fix it. And so he always covered for himself, but he wasn't doing that. He was doing something else. And it took time from our family, and it created just this enormous, aching loneliness because we wanted to be with him because we loved him. The other thing that happens is porn users have flashback memories because, you know, these images get burned into your brain through a chemical mixture. It's, they're really as powerful as LSD, and I'm a kid of the 60s, and LSD was the designer drug back then. I know ecstasy is now, but one of the things that LSD was known for is you have these flashbacks. And so that's what happens with porn. You can be, you look at these images and you're sitting someplace that so there's no magazine, there's no video in front of you, and all of a sudden the image comes up in your mind. And, and you, you can't force it not to, it's just going to come up because you've burned that image in your brain. Well, then what happens is, you're, there you are, you're sitting with the family, you're finally actually physically present, but you are a million miles away in your brain. You are so far away, you're not able to interact, and you're in a, this dissociated state because an addiction creates dissociation and addiction comes because you're already dissociated from some type of pain that you're trying to cover up. So here your family and your loved ones are surrounding you desperately wanting to create memories with you, talk with you, whatever, and, and you're not able to be present. And I can remember many times when my husband was home and he would sit there and he would have this completely blank expression on his face. And I would go over and I would kneel at his feet and I would put my hands on his knees and I would say, in my book he's named Jack because I used a pseudonym for him, but his real name was Steve. Steve, 
see if we need to talk about what we're going to do with the kids in school and and can I ask you a question about this and Steve could we please could we please talk about Christmas and what we're going to get the kids for Christmas and he could not bring himself back down into the present to engage the other thing that happens is that the couple's money is used for things that are destructive of the coupleship you know, when you're spending money on porn, when you're spending money on strip shows, when you're hiring escorts, and my husband did all of that, um, well, you know what? You've got, you've got $100 in the pot. If you take 50 out for this other activity, that, that leaves you with half of what you had. So you're taking money away from things that your family needs and you're actually using it for things that will destroy your family. And I know, um, having worked with many, many, many couples on this topic, I mean, sometimes the amount of money that's spent is staggering. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90,000 dollars on addiction, hiring, especially if you start hiring um, escorts or prostitutes, that really runs the bill up. The phone sex runs the bill up. So there's a lot of money that's being spent that could go into securing the financial future of your family, could go into getting braces for the kids, and instead it's going into things that are destroying, going to destroy your family. Another thing that happens, and, and um, Brooke alluded to this earlier, addicts need to find entitlement to act out. So an addict is not going to do his addiction just to do it. He's going to do it because he's somehow feeling aggrieved about something. You know, he's feeling like a victim or she's feeling like a victim. Like somebody did me wrong. I need to medicate my pain. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to watch a video or I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to look at this magazine or I'm going to go down to the strip club because if I do that for a few short moments, I'm going to feel a little bit better because actually, you know, this stuff does give you fabulous uh, chemicals in your brain to make that give you a temporary high. Now you come crashing down afterwards, but you do actually feel better for a little while. So it's a form of medication, but part of what has to happen is, as Brooke was telling you, they begin to justify their activity. Well, you know, you're really not quite enough for me, and if you would have only spoken to me more kindly, if you only would have done this for me or that for me or whatever, and you didn't understand about this, then I wouldn't need to do that. So there's this transference that's going on where the guilt of this secret addiction is causing the person who has the addiction to begin to blame the other party. Or to begin, I can remember I had the same thing that Brooke did, my husband, worrying that I was going to cheat on him. I'm like, what, are you kidding? <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not going to cheat on you. I would never do that. Well, he was cheating on me. And my, I can even remember growing up, um, my father being so worried about my mother cheating on him and even to the point where he would like check to see if there were any tire tracks in the driveway. Now that, that's a problem. That's a problem. Why would you be so preoccupied about that? So what happens is there's this transference of guilt from the person who's actually doing the behavior onto the person who is like totally clueless that anything is going on and it causes a lot of confusion and it causes us to 
uh, as partners to want to be even more perfect and even better, like maybe I need to clean the house more, you know, maybe I need to lose more weight, maybe I need to be sweeter, maybe I need to do this or whatever, trying to prove that we really are a good soul, that we really do love them, and we come, become more and more confused. Okay, the other thing that happens here is this lying to hide what you're doing. And we think that a lie is only um, something that's, that involves us. You know, like if I tell a lie, and there's, I mean, we say there's white lies. Like if I say, well, do I look fat in this dress? And you say, oh no, you look great. I mean, that could be a white lie, but, but it's, a, it's a lie to try to make me feel better. But then there's the lie where you're trying to cover behavior that is destructive. Um, maybe because you're afraid you'll lose the relationship if you tell the truth, or it could be because you don't want to tell the truth, you just want to you know, have this destructive behavior. But there's different reasons why we lie, but mostly it's because we don't want somebody else to truly know what's going on. And the problem when we lie is that we are creating mental insanity in the person we're lying to. Because usually, um, there's some awareness that something might be going on. You know, not in the beginning, because if we're trusting souls, and I started out being a very trusting soul, um, you know, you tend to take what people say at face value. Oh, okay, you had a machine breakdown. Okay, I'm here to support you. I'm a good wife. You know, I'll keep dinner warm for you. Um, but there's still like this feeling in your gut, like, huh, you know, this happens a lot. I'm just wondering if there's a, you know, was there something else going on here? Like, why didn't he even call me to tell me he was going to be late? He just, you know, waited and showed up. And so there's this nagging feeling that something isn't quite right. And so when you start to ask the questions, like I can remember, I, I went on, um, at one point I went on a, a, a three-day fast. I've been on three-day fast. I went on 30-day fast. I did a lot of fasting to try to figure out what was going on in my marriage. And I went on this fast, and, and I was fasting and I was praying, and the Lord said to me, there's three problems in your marriage. The first one is your husband's taken $350 that don't belong to him. The second one is he's cheating on you. And the third one is he has a lot of pride. And I thought, okay, this is what comes of trying to do something like fasting. I have now gone nuts. Because first of all, I was in um, a faith community that didn't believe that God directly sp speaks to you today. So that was a little freaky. Secondly, did, is that even a word that I wanted to hear? <laughs> and thirdly, like, how do I prove it? How do I even prove it? And so the first thing that happened was a couple days later, uh, somebody came by the house and, and told me that my husband had borrowed money from them and he was wondering when he was going to get paid back. And I was like, well, I didn't know anything about that. So when uh, Steve came home that night, I said to him, so Freddie came by and he wants $700 that you, know, he bar you borrowed from him, which at the time I didn't know, but he was borrowing that money to pay for his addiction. And, um, and Steve was like, oh, well, you know, he's tried to brush it off. And then I found a lot of courage, and I said, you know, I think the problem isn't so much the money you borrowed from Freddie. I think it's $350 that you took that didn't belong to you. 
and my knees were shaking when I said that. And he said, oh, I am so ready to deal with that. I am so ready to deal with that. It was something that had happened this summer that he was 20 years old. He'd borrowed money from his, one of his father's supporters. He was mad at his father because his father left him in the U.S. and went back to Africa as a missionary. And here's this kid who's grown up in the third world. Now he's abandoned in America. He has to figure out how he's going to get to college, how he's going to pay for college. He's not going to see his family for four years. And he borrowed $350 so he could buy a car, and that's the summer he first saw pornography. Okay, so they're very intimately tied together. He didn't deal with that $350, though. He said, no. He said, it's been too long ago. I can't, I can't find the supporter. I don't want to embarrass my father. I don't want to embarrass myself. So then we began to get into the DARVO. Okay, and DARVO stands for, this is gaslighting. Deny or deflect when something is presented. To, no, I didn't do that. Or, well, I did it, but it wasn't as bad as you think it was. That's the D for the deny. A is attack. Okay, so now you attack the person who's asking you because you're trying to push them back. Just like Brooke said, well, I don't know about your family. Your family's pretty screwed up, right? In my case, when I brought up finally found the courage to say, I think the real problem is you're cheating on me. And um, my ex said, I would never do that. And you are a really awful person to even believe that I would do that. You are so awful. I can't. And he went on and on and on. Okay. And then R stands for reverse victim and offender. So what happens is when you gaslight, you reverse and you make the person who is the offender into the victim and the person who is the victim into the offender. Okay, so you're trying to turn it all around so they're the person who's wrong. They're the one, um, you know, I never had sex with that woman not one time. How dare you believe that I did that? I need to get to back to work for the American people and anyone who's getting in the way of me being able to do that, obviously voted for the other candidate, Bill Clinton, okay? And, and all of this attack, 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 I'm the victim here, you're the offender, when really the truth is, I did it, and I just don't wanna own it, and so I'm gonna make you wrong, because I'm trying to drive you away from the truth. I'm trying to deflect you away from the truth. But, what happens then is that creates more and more feelings of insanity in the partner because you're always second-guessing yourself. You're always saying, well, and, and it comes in like this. Um, he says he's going to be home in a certain time, and he doesn't come home, and then when he finally shows up and you say, well, you said you were going to be here. No, I never said that. You, mis you misheard. I never said that. I never promised I'd pick the kids up. That was your job. You were supposed to pick them up. And you start to second-guess yourself, and you start to say, well, did I get that wrong? Well, did I not understand that properly? And I know for me, uh, I got to such a point of being so disempowered by all this gaslighting that was going on. I literally one day climbed into bed, pulled the blankets over my head, and I went, I did. I did. 
because I was so confused. Because I distrusted myself instead of distrusting him. My trust was in him. I was like, if there was a problem, it must be me. And at that point, when I did that, I said, enough of this business. From here on out, even though I have no evidence of anything that's going on, even his best friend who worked with him didn't know that he was into this stuff. Even though I have no evidence, I'm here on out going to act as if this is so. And if I'm wrong, I, okay, I'll be open to it. But from here on, I'm going to act as if this is so, and I will make every decision based on that. And after that, I no longer felt crazy. Okay. This whole thing of lack of empathy... And this goes back to some of our precious people who have this pornography addiction. Some of them became addicted because they were sexually abused. I've talked to, and I mostly talk to the men who are addicts, but there are women who are addicts as well. You know, sexually abused at three, sexually abused at nine and ten. Some of them sexually abused by their mothers. That's heartbreaking. These precious little hearts of these precious little boys who got so devastated and had to harden themselves on from their own humanity and their own pain just to find the courage to go on day after day. And when you have to harden yourself to pain so you can go on, you also harden yourself to other people's pain. And when you're using a product that is made by exploiting others, even as Josh so eloquently explained, you have to harden yourself to whatever pain there is in the people that you're exploiting. I can remember um, asking my husband about, he was hiring escorts and prostitutes, and, and he said one time he hired somebody that he knew she was on drugs when she came into the room. He knew she was on drugs. Well, why was she on drugs? Because she had to numb herself out in order to do what he was gonna pay her for. So we have this cycle here where people are numbing themselves out to their pain, numbing themselves out to the pain of others. And in the process, we lose our ability to have human connection, heart, to heart, because that's about having empathy and being able to be with another person in their humanity. And when we begin to lack empathy, then we begin to not even be able to connect. And one of the things that partners say to me over and over again is, if he would only just really realize what he's done, if he would only just really say to me, I'm really sorry that I did this to you, it's amazing how much forgiveness can flow. But when we lack empathy, we're not able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes because we're not even in our own shoes. We're still living in that dissociated state. And all of this leads to these feelings of being incredibly unsafe, because we are, of being so confused about what's happening, of being invisible to the other person. Because when you're with somebody who doesn't have empathy, my own feeling was I could be on the floor bleeding out and you would step over me because you don't see me at all as a human being. You don't see that my leg and my um, arm have been ripped off and I'm dying here. 
You're just going on as if I'm not even there, I'm totally invisible. That is such a sense of being depersonalized that I can't even put words to what it is. Being disempowered and being completely and totally shamed. Because when all this came out, um, the things that were said to me personally, and we'll go a little bit more into that, devastating. So this, the effect of porn then on your, your sexual relationship, and this is another quote from Marianne Layden that I was already given before, and that is that there's so much unnatural sexual experience that you cannot have a normal human experience. So here's, here's the effect on the sexual relationship. First of all, it confuses sexual arousal with anxiety arousal. Because when you're looking at porn, there's a part of you that knows, hey, this is probably not okay. You're trying to get through it really quickly. So you're living on an anxiety arousal that feels like a sexual arousal because you know that wonderful feeling you get right in here when you're a little bit scared? That's an anxiety arousal that's easy to confuse with sexual arousal. But the problem is when you start to be with a real human being, they pick that up. It might be subconscious, but they pick up this anxiety as opposed to a sexual arousal. Using pornography causes erectile dysfunction. And this is really one of the biggest reasons why the younger generation men are turning away from pornography. Thank God if it had to be this. Okay, thank you. Um, we're not gonna get through this whole uh, session, but I wanna talk about this because I think this is really, really important. Dartmouth College, their health, um, the health department there, one of the biggest reasons why the young men are coming in is because they cannot get it up with their girlfriend. Now think about that. We're talking 19, 20, and 21-year-old men cannot get it up with their girlfriend. Why? Because they're masturbating to pornography. And they have done something a slide that we're not going to get to. Let me see if it's the next one. Yeah, it's right here. Chasing the Cardboard Butterfly. Um, Nicholas Tenbergen, who is a uh, Nobel Prize winning ethnologist, he did a study where he took and he fashioned uh, bird eggs and he painted them. He did this out of plaster. He painted them up really pretty. And then he put them in nests and he wanted to see would the birds choose their own, 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 own pretty eggs to sit on? Guess which ones they chose? The pretty ones, not their own eggs. Then he took and he fashioned cardboard butterflies. He cut them out. He decorated them. He made them really pretty. And he looked to see would the male butterflies go for the cardboard butterflies or would they go for their own natural butterflies? And guess which ones the males chose? They chose the cardboard ones, okay? Because they are a super normal stimulus. And that's the same thing that happens in the sexual relationship, person to person. When someone's looking at pornography, they will choose the false, the fake, over the real. Because there's something about this that seems bigger, brighter, better, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there. It's not real on any level. And they'll still choose that over the real thing. And so when they're with the real thing, then they have erectile dysfunction, 
or if they're still able to get it up, they'll have premature ejaculation because they've been masturbating to pornography and the whole point is to get off as fast as you can. And then you've conditioned yourself to ejaculate quickly. So when you're with your wife who needs a lot of intravaginal stimulation in order for her to achieve orgasm, you can't last. And so she's left feeling frustrated. And if the Darvo thing you know, goes on, then the implication might be, well, you know, if you were only a better lover wife, then I would be able to last longer. But it's really about the biological, the neurological conditioning that's happened because of masturbating to pornography. And then this has already been said about the rape fantasies and the abusive sexual behavior and the STDs, but there's another thing that I want to mention, and this is really important. And I started talking about this 20 years ago and got a lot of shocked looks, but it's happening. I mean, it's being borne out now. When you're looking at pornography and you're masturbating to pornography, you're looking at a man who's in an arousal state, and you're looking at a woman who's in an arousal state, and you are arousing yourself to both of those images. Even if you think, I'm only arousing myself to the woman, you are arousing yourself to both of them, and then you're rewarding that arousal with an orgasm, which seals that uh, cycle inside of you. And so what's happening more and more is that the men who are looking at pornography and women who are looking at pornography, they are finding without any intention on their part that there is an arousal that is happening to their same sex. Okay, so men who would never maybe have thought of themselves as gay are suddenly finding they're looking at somebody and they're a man and they're, they're like feeling aroused. And they're like, well, where did that come from? A woman who's not a lesbian who uh, has been using pornography can suddenly find herself looking at another woman and she's aroused. Well, where did that come from? Because you were masturbating to these images. And it's not your sexual orientation at all, but you have biochemically and neurologically conditioned yourself into a state of gender confusion. And we're, gonna, we're seeing so much of that right now. People don't know if they're men or if they're women. Um, or if they're bi or whatever it is, and it's because a lot of it is because of the pornography. So I have to wrap it before I get to the pictures. I'm going to just show you really quick, though. I'm going to skip through this because I want to show you a picture of the brain on porn. Boy, time sure went fast. Um, I want to show you. Okay, this is what the brain looks like of someone who has PTSD. Lisa, did you show this last night? Did you show anything like this last night? Okay, okay. When we've been traumatized, our brain is so uh, hyper-fires. And parts of our brain actually shrink, and parts of our brain actually grow. And the parts that shrink are the parts that have to do with making good decisions, with emotional regulation. The parts that grow, the amygdala, is one of the parts that usually gets larger. And that's the part that's like your sonar system, always looking for where the danger is, always trying to figure out what's coming up next. And, and I'm sorry, we're not going to have time, because I know we need to wrap this, right, Pastor? To get into actually what happens to the traumatized brain in the partner 
as well as in the addict. But I can tell you this, that post-traumatic stress disorder, which I lived with for over 20 years as a result of my husband's addiction, it is devastating. It is devastating on so many levels. It is the first time that something happened to me that I could not fix by an act of my will. I could not fix it. I could not pull myself out of it by an act of my will. And I didn't have any idea of how damaged my brain was. But the confusion, the anxiety, difficulty swallowing, uh, difficulty reading, not able to concentrate, not able to sleep, living in a mental fog all the time, you need help to get out of that. You need professional help to get out of that. A lot of the addicts even went into the addiction with their own PTSD from traumas that they had. And this is why we need a team approach, a professional community approach, as well as the support of our faith community. Because if you were in a terrible automobile accident and you had internal injuries, I would hope that your church would come and pray for you and bring you meals. But I would also hope that you have a well-qualified surgeon who can go in and do whatever internal repairs are needed. And that's what the therapeutic community is all about, is to have that, that special skill set to know how to repair those, even while your faith community surrounds you with love and prayer. Okay, thank you guys so much.